0: You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Typically, our podcasts involve a discussion between myself and a KOL or subject matter expert. But for this episode series with Dr. John Molinari, we have created three 30-minute segments, which are excerpts from his recent infection control presentation. This episode, the last of this three-part series, addresses instrument processing, puncture-resistant utility gloves, instrument washers, COVID-19 and surface contamination, and waterline contamination and its treatment. Each of the three episodes covers relevant information that directly pertains to things you should be aware of regarding your infection control protocol in your dental office. In light of the pandemic, Dr. Molinari, one of the most respected experts in infection control in hospital, clinic, and dental office settings, covers the latest guidelines to practicing safely and in ways that will bode well in front of an OSHA inspector. Please welcome Dr. John Molinari.
1: Well, good afternoon. My name is John Molinari. I'm a microbiologist. I've been asked by CICANT, uh, Colteen CICANT, to present this on infection control during and after COVID-19. When we look at instrument processing, I'm not going to bore you too much with this. Uh, some of you can remember practicing maybe in the 70s. I'm not sure, but you certainly can remember the early 80s. And you can remember instrument reprocessing was uh, basically hand scrubbing. Uh, you had a lot of things you put in cold, sterile, gluteraldehydes. We don't use those things anymore. Uh, very few practices were sport testing. When we started our monitoring service at the school in Detroit, uh, we had virtually no one doing it, but it, it, it took hold of that. Uh, Look at where we are now. We sterilize critical and semi-critical items according to the Spalding classification, which came out in the early 70s. And you have improved. Some of you, as I mentioned, have uh, made the professional and financial commitment to purchase cassettes. And that's great, that's great. Huge help with infection control and safety. There's less handling of contaminated instruments, You rinse instruments off before you put them in your ultrasonic or you put them in your instrument washer. You save wear and tear on the instruments from uh, bouncing against each other in your pouches and having uh, damage to them that you have to send them back to the instrument manufacturers. They work. When you look at cleaning, of course, remember that's the fundamental first step in every decontamination process. You need to clean first. You clean hands before you put on gloves. You clean instruments before you sterilize. You clean surfaces before you disinfect. You clean water lines before you maintain low levels. Uh, Notice I have an X here through the hand scrubbing with the uh, regular exam gloves. Uh, This is where I miss being in the room with you. Uh, I would typically ask people how many of you had nicked yourselves sometime in your practice lives hand scrubbing instruments and a whole bunch of hands go up. And that's the whole point. The OSHA blood borne pathogen standard and the infection control protocol just to protect you from occupational exposure. And so, what was put out there years ago, uh, puncture resistant utility gloves. And the second question I would ask you in a, in a room, but how many of you do not like the utility gloves? And again, virtually every hand goes up. They're too big, they're too bulky, I can't feel anything, et cetera, et cetera. Understand this is for your protection, but also understand that you have choices. These are not FDA regulated medical devices. You can find puncture resistant or relatively puncture resistant utility gloves. Obviously, manufacturers have them, but you can find these online. Make sure that you look for these because you are protecting yourselves. And this is something that uh, ocean inspectors or other evaluators go into the offices when they go in to see people working and they see them using these, that's good. If they see them using these exam gloves, that's not good because that's an occupational risk there. Obviously, you every one of you has ultrasonics. Some of you have instrument washers. Uh, these things have been FDA approved to clean sensitive medical instruments. Uh, there are specific products that are used for these. Uh, with the ultrasonics, uh, I, I I couldn't believe just how many uh, how many different um, uh, times there were for different ultrasonic products. Follow manufacturer's instructions for use. Uh, we used to change these things many, many years ago, uh, weekly or when they got cloudy. Think about that for a minute. If you can see and smell the organisms, that means they've been there for a while. Now we change them at least daily or more frequently with heavy use. Our instrument washer, washer disinfectors, the uh, hydrums, uh, the Milays by Milay. Uh, have been developed, tested, and approved to clean sensitive medical instruments. They They are not dishwashers. This is very important, and these things work very, very well. This is your payoff. You clean, you wrap, you sterilize, you store wrapped instruments until just before use. And patients love this. They may not tell you, but they love it. They're watching, and they look to see this. And this is what you have done so well, by the way. When we look at how we store instruments, uh, we used to have what was called time or date-related storage where there would be uh, committees, uh, health agencies, that would say basically if something had been uh, not used for nine months or a year, whatever it was, uh, it was uh, quote unquote uh, outdated, needed to be unwrapped, rewrapped, re-sterilized, grouped like the Association of Operating Room Nurses years ago said, wait a minute, if something is kept free of contamination because of storage properly, it should remain sterile for extended periods of time or almost indefinitely. And that's true. What you have is event-related storage that says that you store packaged instruments in clean, dry location to prevent contamination so you don't have things stuffed together where you can have sharp pointed edges poking through it is then incumbent upon the dental assistant for example when they're setting up the operatories to look at the packaging of the instruments if the packaging is intact it's fine if it's compromised and you see something like this it's cast aside has to be unwrapped rewrapped uh, cleaned and sterilized it's a member day sterilization I'll, I'll briefly bring up again SARS-CoV-2 again with you but we're looking at disinfection and this is something that we haven't seen the large issues in dentistry that have been seen in medicine over many, many, many decades, almost like forever, because surface contamination in hospital systems is a major role for microbial transmission, uh, where you have obviously sick patients, uh, patients uh, shedding Various types of organisms: methicillin-resistant staph, amikacin-resistant nocardia, noroviruses, etc. Um, and so, uh, when when people have touched contaminated surfaces and then they and then they touch skin of somebody else, uh, or they, they they can actually transmit organisms. Uh, now, of course. Uh, you you need a high enough concentration of organisms to accomplish this. And the fact that there's an organism present doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna cause an infection. You need the appropriate concentrations, the infectious dose, if you will. We've seen hep B, hep C even transmitted uh, with environmental surfaces and renal dialysis units. Is it common? Absolutely not, but it can happen. So the question came up early on with the COVID-19 pandemic, is SARS-CoV-2 transmitted from contaminated surfaces? Well, there was an article that came out, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, very early on in the pandemic, uh, that, that talked about the persistence of SARS-CoV-2 viability uh, in the air and also uh, on inanimate surfaces. And you see here the, re- the reports of that. Some of you remember the pushback from that when this, this report made the newspapers. I know a number of people who, when they got packages sent to their homes, they put them in the garage and they kept them there for three days. Uh, before they brought them in, they sprayed them with whatever disinfectant they were spraying or wiped them, and then they opened them up because they were concerned about transmission from uh, contaminated surfaces. Yes, it can happen. It's possibly happened, probably happened. However, it does not seem to be the major mode of transmission for SARS-CoV-2. When you look at the fact that this virus can stay viable for extended periods of time outside the body, that's the important thing. Compare that to other occupational pathogens that we've seen. Of course, staph aureus is the award winner. That can stay uh, viable on walls, countertops, et cetera, uh, for months, and it's not even a spore former. Look at your other respiratory viruses, influenza viruses, rhinoviruses that can stay on surfaces. They can be picked up and transmitted uh, and cause infection by people touching contaminated surfaces uh, with their hands and touching their noses. But again, that's, that's concentration of organism dependent with this. What do you do for your contaminated surfaces after procedures? Well, environmental surfaces are, according to the Spaulding classification, non-critical items, so they do not need to be uh, uh, sterilized, of course. Uh, The recommendation is that for clinic contact surfaces, which are the high-touch surfaces during procedures, for environmental surfaces, they are to be covered or cleaned and disinfected between patients. Housekeeping surfaces that are not touched during patient care are only to be cleaned on a regular basis. And we've seen a real evolution with these environmental surface covers, These are very readily available now. The plastics industry has responded very, very well over the years, where now there are more and more of these covers that are environmentally friendly. They can be actually recycled. Some are even biodegradable, but they work. Now, you can get a little crazy about this. People need to be reasonable with these things. But again, using them as single use disposable items. This has changed from what many people were doing many decades ago, where we were using these things maybe for half a day and then changing them. These things are single-use disposable items because they will break down with exposure to the surface disinfectants and disinfectant wipes that you're using. Of course, then we need to look at a large area of surface disinfectant products. And here you have a whole variety of uh, products that have uh, uh, multiple active ingredients uh, multiple contact times multiple levels of cleaning etc this list is not just unique to me uh, uh, so many of us have been using this but uh, a bit over 20 years ago we were able I was able to add this environmentally friendly label to it because then we started to see the introduction of hydrogen peroxide products uh, exemplified for example some of you are using Optimum by now, I believe we have, uh, well, started in 2014, uh, Clorox, the bleach people, came out with the hydrogen peroxide surface disinfectant wipes as well. And I don't know if there's anything other than that. But the reason why I mention this is hydrogen peroxide breaks down into oxygen and water. So you're not adding any chemicals into the environment or in, in the wastewater or anything like this with, the, with with your sprays and stuff like that. They can't advertise to my knowledge, and I could be wrong. uh, They can't advertise environmentally friendly because as I recall the criteria for that with the government haven't been established. Somebody correct me if I am wrong on that, please. But there are all different surface disinfectants. And if you talk to reps, theirs is the best thing since sliced bread. There are some criteria for you to follow with this. One, you need to clean and disinfect between patients. Okay, for your environmental surfaces that using this. You have some products that require separate cleaners. If they have so for example, uh, many of the high alcohol products, uh, some do not. Uh, you have your uh, products that have low uh, alcohol concentrations which can do a, a decent job cleaning uh, and then disinfecting. But when you have something like a hydrogen peroxide, you have an excellent cleaner and they're very short contact time. And that contact time is important for all these. Look at the labels. Some are 10 minutes, that's amazing. You have to keep the surfaces wet for 10 minutes. Some are five minutes, some are three minutes. And that's okay too, but you need to keep the surfaces wet. Some are one minute and that's fine. You have a couple that are one minute, for example, hydrogen peroxide and a couple of the other ones are one minute. Uh, The optimum is one minute and that's fine. Somewhere you have to practice dentistry to pay for all this stuff. So you need to make sure that you follow the manufacturer's instructions to keep the surfaces wet for the recommended period of time. When we look at SARS-CoV-2, the EPA early on said that you needed to use a surface disinfectant that was approved for SARS-CoV-2. Well, look at what coronaviruses are in the hierarchy of organisms for disinfection. They are a very susceptible lipid-coated virus. And they said early on, you could use a low-level disinfectant. Well, I know for a fact that virtually every one of you listening to this is using an intermediate level disinfectant. And there you're looking at tuberculocidal activity as a major criterion. Your tuberculocidal time is pretty much your, your time of exposure. As I said, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, whatever it is. These are higher levels than your low level disinfectants. But the EPA said that the manufacturers still needed to make sure that they were effective against SARS-CoV-2. So early on, the EPA came out with a list N, and you have very probably done this with your disinfectants to see if the manufacturer had submitted data to show that uh, not just coronaviruses, but this is a coronavirus, but specifically SARS-CoV-2 could be killed by that disinfectant. And you have a number of the surface disinfectants uh, have have done that uh, very readily. If you are not sure about your surface disinfectant, You go on the EPA website, go to list N, and you enter the EPA registration number, and you look to see if you find the product. Remember, some of the products have different product names. It's a generic product by some of your distributors. You look for this, when you find it, you'll find all sorts of good information about that product. And notice also, by the end of October, EPA had improved more than 500 surface disinfectant products. It's not a difficult organism to kill, but because of the severity of this pandemic, they wanted to make sure the people were using disinfectants that specifically would kill that organism. The last thing I want to mention for you is your water lines. And this is an area that's taken on increased importance, certainly in the last 20 years, even even before then, but it's really exploded the last 20 years, uh, where we look at uh, biofilms, and the potential for stagnant water and the difference between water that's in our dental water lines with narrow lumens and the water that's in the plumbing systems of our home where the plumbing is much larger lumens. When you look at the kind of water that should be going into patients' mouths, obviously surgical procedures, sterile water, sterile saline, but for routine dental procedures where you're placing water into patients' mouth, that water needs to meet basic regulatory standards for drinking water, sanitized water, which is less than 500 colony-forming units of heterotrophic bacteria per milliliter of water. Multiple, multiple studies done have shown that untreated water samples can have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bacteria per milliliter of water uh, in a very short period of time. Hospitals, again, have a lot of experience with contaminated water. Many, many uh, experiences with waterborne infections in patients Uh, in various types of areas of the hospitals. I put together a list on the side here of the types of uh, water sources where infections have been transmitted uh, from contaminated shower heads in old VA hospitals, uh, to uh, faucet aerators with biofilms that were next to patients, uh, beds that were dripping, that uh, uh, exposed patients uh, to pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, scopes that weren't cleaned properly, all sorts of uh, tubs and uh, dialysis water that wasn't treated properly, you name it. One thing I've highlighted here for you that does apply to you is what are you doing, for example, with your eyewash stations? Your manufacturers of the eyewash station that you installed gave you specific instructions. Check them out. Some of these will say flush weekly for about 15 minutes to clear the free-flowing organisms out of the water. And you're actually not having prolonged stagnation. The last thing you want to have is somebody that's had eye injury going to the eye wash station and it hasn't been used in months or flushed in months. And you're actually flushing the eyes with highly colonized water. When we look at dental water lines, there are multiple places for dental water lines to become contaminated all the way back at the treatment facility where the uh, uh, water hadn't been uh, treated properly before it's plumbed into uh, the homes and the facilities and the hospitals, et cetera. Uh, we've had outbreaks in in, in cities. Uh, 1993, the whole city of Milwaukee's water supply was contaminated with, with cryptosporidium because one of the power plants and one of the water treatment facilities wasn't working. Uh, you look at the uh, tragedy in Flint, Michigan, uh, where they switched the water supply over from one river to another in 20 to 2014, it's a a, a, a little tragedy. And you have various places where you can see contamination occur. Why? Remember I said about the narrow lumens. Well, these are the properties of the dental waterline lumens, uh, waterline tubing. They're very small lumens. uh, So you have a large surface for attachment and colonization of bacteria, especially on the walls right here, versus the center of the tubing where the water is going through and so you have this large surface area for colonization where the organisms can attach and grow and thicken the tubing materials conducive for microbial attachment here is a virgin brand new cross-section of a dental water line look at it a couple of weeks later without any mates look at the thick biofilms that you can see the debris that's on there that's how fast these things grow this is what happens Uh, Over time, we did studies on a variety of waterline treatment products uh, over the years and uh, did some of the electron micrograph studies with this. And you see here the pioneer organisms attach onto the walls. They grow, they thicken, they proliferate, they create materials for organisms uh, going by to attach and grow. And they form little micro colonies Uh, Some of these organisms produce extracellular polysaccharides here, which now make this uh, biofilm even more tenacious and much more resistant to removal with flushing uh, water. As the biofilms get thicker and thicker, they move out into where the uh, water is flushing by very very rapidly. Pieces of this biofilm can become brittle and chunks can break off and come out you may actually see chunks. Typically, you don't. But when you culture the free-flowing organisms with your water samples, you will see very high counts. These are complex microbial interactions. They actually form microbial communities. They actually send chemical messages to each other, where to grow, what to produce, keep this one out, I'll take care of this one, whatever it is. But they grow very well in stagnant water. And flushing does not reliably improve down water quality because it doesn't remove the biofilms. They're very serious sounding names, but typically these are common strains of organisms that are found in the environment and water. We've been exposed to these our whole lives from a variety of sources, uh, airborne sources, just contact sources, drinking sources, whatever. But our immune systems takes care of this, especially the aerosolized stuff. However, look at your practices. You're seeing more and more immune-compromised dental patients. Thank God people are living longer with conditions that we used to die from. And that's great because people are living longer, healthier lives. However, their immune systems may not be as up to snuff as yours. And so what can happen is with increased exposure to some of these organisms, those organisms may not act as just common ground organisms that we see all the time they may act as opportunistic pathogens and cause problems. There have been outbreaks. There have been outbreaks, of course, in in medicine. I briefly alluded to that. Uh, We have, at this point, five documented outbreaks in dentistry that have been traced back to contaminated dental water lines. Uh, The first one uh, was back in the 1980s. And this was an instance where uh, uh, two uh, cancer survivors uh, went to a dentist for treatment and they developed odontogenic aeruginosa infections as a result of the treatment uh, after, after the appointments. Uh, I have to mention that aeruginosa is not part of the normal oral flora. So the fact that when they went to the hospital because of these infections and they were diagnosed, uh, that was something strange. Well, thank God they were, they were treated with antibiotics. They was treated, et cetera. They were okay. That was fine. Uh, but the health facilities uh, health agencies, public health agencies still had to figure out where they got these infections. And eventually they traced it back to the dental practice and found the same strain of Pseudomonas aeruginosa in the high speed handpiece lines, the water lines, as they found in the infections. There were also other patients in the practices, in that practice, who didn't develop clinical infections, but they were found to carry that same strain of Pseudomonas aeruginosa for months in the oral cavity from exposure to that dental water. The one that uh, first was very, very severe uh, came out in uh, 2012. It occurred in 2011, and it was the first case of an elderly patient who died of Legionnaire's disease following dental treatment. It was an elderly uh, woman who uh, did not leave her home between the two dental appointments that she had. After the second appointment, she started to develop some respiratory symptoms, developed the fever, started coughing up material, became more confused. Family took her to the hospital. She was diagnosed with Legionnaire's disease, based on antibiotics, but tragically, she died. And when they looked to see where she had gotten the infection, they checked her home, of course, because that was where she was pretty much all the time. And they didn't find evidence of that strain of Legionella pneumophila when they went to the dental office they found the same exact strain in the high-speed handpiece lines when you look in 2015 and 2016 there were two outbreaks in pediatric dental practices uh, thank god none of the children died there were hospitalizations though and it turned out that in each of these outbreaks uh, the children had had pulpotomies performed using tap water and they developed the odonogenic infections of a common waterborne organism brownwater organism Uh, non-tuberical mycobacterium, uh, mycobacterium abscessus. Uh, Both practices thought that their dental waterline treatments were appropriate, but it turned out that they were not, and they found high concentrations of these organisms in the uh, waterline for a variety of reasons. The last one uh, occurred in 2017, I believe. That was in Sweden, where an elderly man went to a hospital dental clinic for uh, dental care, and developed Legionnaire's disease and tragically died. So yes, waterborne infections can happen uh, in dental facilities. When you look at what you are asked to do, again, the basic principles do not change. You clean first. So when you're using a new uh, type of product or a new type of water technology, uh, water uh, uh, infection control technology, you clean first. You clean the lines There are specific preparations. Uh, that are called shock solutions. These typically are run through the lines uh, and they're left in there overnight. And then they will clean all the debris, the biofilms out because the next day you come and you run bottles of uh, uh, water through to clean the chemical uh, shock solutions. These solutions are such where they're strong materials and they do not come in contact with mucosal tissue. So you need to make sure that these things are cleaned out of the lines before you start using those lines with regular water or uh, whatever treatment material you're using that to to treat patients. Your maintenance products will hopefully deter microbial growth or slow it down for a period of time, uh, depending on the nature of the uh, maintenance product. And these are some examples of waterline products. Check with your manufacturers. They tell you exactly how to use these. They tell you what type of clearance they have. Uh, Some of you are using tablets. You may be using ICX tablets or blue tabs uh, from ADEC or ProEdge. Uh, These work well, but these do not stop microbial growth. They slow it down dramatically. And every couple of months, the manufacturers say that you should shock those lines. Even though you're putting tablets in each bottle of water, you should shock those lines with something else because you will slowly build up concentrations of organisms which will exceed the uh, potable water standard. There are companies that have these. Uh, For example, this is a a, a hydrogen peroxide product. Uh, It's Liquid Ultra, very, very good. Citrusil has, I believe, tablets, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for uh, shocking uh, the lines periodically. Some of you are using straws or cartridges. These are the iodine-containing straws, the uh, Dentipure ones. Uh, there's uh, sterile, which is silver iron. There are solutions, which may be run uh, weekly, for example. All of these are determined by manufacturer's instructions. Your job is to find what works best for you, and especially what works for the people that are going to be using this, because some of these things are more labor-intensive than others. For example, the straws. And the iodine straws, the silver ion straws, uh, after you after you prep the lines and you put them on, they're, they're good for a year. They're good for a year, which is great. That's less maintenance. But make sure that the product instructions for use are being followed. Make sure your source water is clean. A number of you use distilled water and you make your own distilled water. Well, that's great. But make sure that the container that you're storing the distilled water in is periodically clean. Otherwise, you could be growing organisms over a period of time that you didn't expect. Here's your best practices, flushing lines at the beginning and end of the day, flushing between patients, obviously, sterile water, sterile saline for surgical procedures, and one that is still evolving. Procedures are getting better. The techniques are getting better. Technology is getting better is to test the water lines. What do you do as far as water for your sterilizers? Well, you know that your sterilizers require distilled water, you don't want to use tap water for this. In fact, uh, some of the newer sterilizers, like your newer statums, they'll produce an error message if the water exceeds uh, five parts uh, per million total dissolvable solids. There are things that you need to look at to make sure that if, you know, the kind of water that you are using for your sterilizers as well as your water lines. And where you look at monitoring, there are companies, uh, ProEdge, Loma Linda, there are other uh, universities and other companies now, I believe, that are coming out that can monitor using gold standard culture tests. Um, there, but there are more and more in-office systems coming out. These paddles that have been coming out in recent years are nice. There's more uh, 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 quantitative data that's available from these things. This is nice, but we still need better. And there are companies uh, coming in from Europe, companies coming in from Canada that are, have had products that are now in the mill for the EPA or the FDA, looking at allowing you and others to test water lines much more frequently in your offices. And that's nice. Just like you're sterilizing monitoring in your offices, many of you, you testing the water lines are important. And there are good data that have shown that Offices that monitor their sterilizers more frequently have better results because you find out where you need to improve and you can improve. Uh, The OSAP, the Office, uh, the Infection Control Group for Dentistry, in 2018 came out with a white paper uh, that's very, very good, very comprehensive, uh, talking about uh, intervals for monitoring and their recommendation has been uh, when you are installing new devices, straws, uh, tablets, solutions, whatever it is, test monthly to make sure that you're doing the protocols correctly. When you get two consecutive monthly cycles that have 500 or below, then you can reduce the frequency to every three months. This is not an official recommendation, but groups like the CDC are looking at this and looking at collecting data to show that uh, periodic monitoring is going to be so much more effective. Thank you so much for listening to this tonight. I hope this has been somewhat useful.